music that reminds us of God's love and God's grace. As we sing, we pray that we glorify Him. Over the summer, we have been in a series entitled Building Faith. We uh, looked in the book of Ezra back last fall. Now we're finishing up the book of Nehemiah. So if you'd like to turn there, Nehemiah chapter 9, Nehemiah chapter 9, and we'll be um, moving through into chapter 10 verse 27. So a good long section, but a section I think that is so important. And I've been waiting, excited to bring this to you uh, this, this morning. So let's bow in prayer. As you have found that, let's bow in prayer and ask God's blessing to understand his word today. Gracious God, thank you so much for the power of your love. The all-consuming grace that would take a sinner that is wretched and make them clean. And Father, that is what happened to us, we who are your children. We've been made clean by the blood of Christ, and so now we stand in Christ's righteousness. And Father, I thank you that we can look into your word and look into the Old Testament that is so full of lessons and to understand them in the context in which they were written, but also understand in this time after the cross, and that we might glory in who you are and what you are, my glory in your attributes, that we might see you, God, as you are, and then see ourselves as we are. Lord, as we come face to face with that glimpse of you and our hearts, may we be transformed. And so, God, I pray that by the work of the Holy Spirit, that you would unfold your word to us. Lord, I need your great wisdom and understanding. So, Father, take my words, conform them to what you would have from your word, and may your word be what is found in remembrance in our hearts as we go from here, that you may be glorified, you may be honored. For it's in Christ I pray. Amen. Nehemiah 9, I think it'd be good if we get a little background, a little background. Nehemiah is in Susa, the capital. Uh, The children of Israel, because of God's punishment to them, have been sent and scattered. Most went early on into Babylon. Babylon was conquered, that they were conquered. And so now Nehemiah is here in Susa, some hundreds of miles away from the homeland of the Jews. And as he is in Susa, he is in the court of the king, King Artaxerxes, a great and powerful man. But this one, who his family was a slave, a Jewish slave now, has been placed in one of the highest positions that one could be in, someone of his rank. He's a cupbearer to the king, a trusted member of of the court of King Artaxerxes. And so this one is serving. And as he is serving, uh, we don't know much about his early life, but as in this position, he now receives from Israel a brother, his brother Hananiah. And he brings news. He brings troubling news. Now, you know, for, for Nehemiah, he had a great life. I mean, if you're going to be a slave somewhere in a foreign country, you might as well be the cupbearer of the king because you get a lot of good food. And uh, you're well taken care of. You live close, probably in the palace. Wasn't nice as the kings, but was sure nicer than a whole lot of other people. But he gets this news that troubles him greatly. 
His brother comes and he says that the walls of the city in Jerusalem, the homeland of his people, are crumbled and broken down. Yes, those had come, gone back with, with Zerubbabel and Ezra, had rebuilt the temple, but the, still the walls of the city were broken. And as the walls of the city were broken, this once great city of the great God, Jerusalem, now this city is, is in shambles. In fact, we find later on in Nehemiah that not many people wanted to live in Jerusalem. They would live outside of the city. It was almost, almost uninhabitable. Nehemiah is burdened. He is so burdened that he goes to prayer. He fasts. He cries out to God because of the condition of Jerusalem. And he prays. And a space of four long months go by. As he is serving, but also on his face before God, crying out to God that God would do something for Israel, for Jerusalem. And so, four months after he hears the news, God opens the door. The king sees him. He sees that his countenance is troubled. And he says, it's not because you drank something bad that's going to poison the king. No, it's because it's of the heart. Your heart is, is broken. What's wrong, Nehemiah? And we see here that the Nehemiah prayed instantly to the God of the heaven. Quickly, in the moment, just as he'd been praying for a long time, fasting and praying, now in the moment he goes to God and then he, he pours out his heart before the king. And God does a remarkable thing in the king's heart and he changes this king, this pagan king, and he says, I will not only let you go, but I'm going to give you letters. I'm going to give you a safe passage to the governors on the way. And beyond that, I'm going to give you supplies. I want to make it so you have all the tools that you need to rebuild the walls. And so he sends Nehemiah to do, to accomplish this task. And Nehemiah goes, and we have in the early chapters, Nehemiah going out at night with his horse and maybe just a few other men and trying to, to go around the circumference of the walls. And it was so impassable, he couldn't get off on his horse. He had to get off and walk. This rubble was everywhere. And he goes to the people and says, the leaders said, this is what God has led me to do. This is why I, I'm here. He casts the vision. They rise to the, the vision. The people say, let's, let's go build. And they do. And while they are building, they encounter conflicts, both within of fear, a fear of what's going on, of, of animosity between those who are uh, taking advantage of the weak, <clears throat> of the poor. They encounter conflict from those without, from Sambalat and Tobiah, as they were trying to discourage them and, and to stop the work. But God, in 52 days, allows them to complete the walls. And so we have an artist's rendition of, of that time, the city of David below and the temple mount of, of Nehemiah's time. The walls are now built. Everything's fine now, right? Well, Ezra puts in safeguards. He, he sets up gatekeepers. He does all the things he needs to do. And then we come to chapter 8. In chapter 8, I'm sorry, another slide here of uh, uh, another rendition of the walls. But we come to chapter 8. And we, this is where we last left off, I think, the end of July. They gathered on the first day of their civil year, their, their new year. So they gathered there on the first day, and they do something interesting. They don't have a party first. They don't, like we're New Year's, we're shooting off fireworks and have fireworks. They come together and they produce a scroll and Ezra comes 
and reads the scroll of the book of the law, the Torah, to the people. And it's interesting to note there that in that, and he says in chapter 8, verse 8, they read from the book of the law of God and translating or making sense of it so that they would understand the reading. So Ezra would read, and, the, and it would seem that there were there are a priest also there that would, would communicate. This is what this means that Ezra's reading. And they stood there, and they read, and they read. And so it says in, in, in the tentative, you see, he read in the public square, verse 3 of 8, um, from early morning until midday. You see, they read, and so Ezra blessed 6, and the people said, Amen and Amen. They lift up their voices. Verse 8, they read from the book of the law, as I just read, Law of God translating. And then, verse 9, the Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This is a day holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. Now, why would they say that? Well, it tells us because they were mourning and weeping when they heard the word of the law. Remarkable thing here. They hear, they hear the word, word of the law. They hear the book. The, we don't know exactly what portions that Ezra read. But they hear that, and they are struck to their heart, to their soul, and they begin to weep. And we can only gather that they are weeping because of what they heard in contrast to how they've been living. But they say, no, don't weep. This is the first day of the new civil year, the civil year of the calendar here. This is the first day, a day that's holy, dedicated to God, and a day that would begin a series of feasts, rejoice. Rejoice, and so they do so. And we see here a great worship of God. And in verse 10, it says, they send them away and said, I want you to, to go eat of the fat. That doesn't mean, you know, um, bad things for you. Enriched food, wonderful, great food. It, and send portions of those to, to those who don't have anything prepared. Take care of those who don't have much to eat. This is a day holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved because the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so they rejoiced. And they continued to rejoice. And they moved into the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And they have a time of celebration and feast days here. Seven days plus an extra day, the eighth day on that. And they did that until the 22nd day of the month. From the first, what what a great time. From the first day to the 22nd day. And they celebrated for the very first time. Since the days of Joshua, they celebrated properly the Feast of Booths. I think that's remarkable. Not in the times of the kings and the judges. No, it went back to the, king, the time of Joshua. They had not built the booths and, and celebrated. What was this all about? This to memorialize for them what God had done as he brought them from the land of Egypt, how they lived in temporary housing, how they, how they wandered, but God continued to lead them and to guide them. It was to call them back to their greatness and the great provision of their God. So now, some of them had perfectly good houses, but they were sleeping outside in these makeshift tabernacles, dwelling places, to remember what God had done for them. And they celebrated, celebrated who God was. Verse 18, while that was going on, he read from the book of the law of God daily from the first day to the last day, and they celebrated the feast seven days. On the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the ordinance. Now, chapter 9, you know I was going to get there eventually. Now, the 24th day of this month, the sons of Israel assembled with fasting and sackcloth 
and dirt upon them. We just had feasts. We just had worship. We just had celebration. What's with all the dirt? What's with all the dirt? It was interesting because at the end of the 22nd day, here the 24th, people stayed again. Fasting? And, and the other odd thing about this is that usually you fasted in preparation for feast. Okay? It was a time of spiritual purification, signified by physical purification. They're fasting afterwards. But with sackcloth, if you've been any around any um, biblical history, the fasting, the sackcloth, the dirt, sometimes ashes, signified great grief. Great grief for the people. Kidner, in his, his commentary, speaks of this, and he talks about how that Ezra and Nehemiah want to associate with doing the will of God with worship and great joy and delight, but now, he says, it was equally important to see the, set this delight firmly in contrast to the gall of sin and to face the facts of the past and the challenge of the future. The responsive mood must be harnessed to the will. What's going on? After worship comes confession. After worship comes confession. See, what is happening here is they come and celebrate. Now they're going back to their original response when the book of the law was read. They saw who God was, what he commanded, and they saw what was lacking in their hearts. Verse 2, the descendants of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners, and they stood and they confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Forefathers, those who had gone before them, not necessarily only immediate, but those who had gone before them. And they stood in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a fourth of the day, and another fourth they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. Half a day now, again, they're reading the law and worshiping God. And you see what's happening here in chapter 9 is confession. Two types of confession. Confession of God. Confession of God. Now, when we say confession, we think in our time, I'm, I'm saying something that I'm confessing what, I, what I've done wrong. That's the meaning in just a minute. Here it is almost in Romans 10, 9. For we confess with our mouth or profess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in our hearts we shall be saved. And here it is, there, you'll see in this chapter a confession of God, of who God is. And it's not just one-dimensional, not just one aspect of God. It's in many aspects of God here. So it's a, a dual confession of God, and then a confession of sin. They're going to confess in the traditional sense of what we think of. They're confess the sins of their we're going to see this, and we're going to switch back. First of all, verse 5, it says to the people, Arise, bless the Lord your God forever. He calls the people to, to stand up and to, to arise and bless God. And then he addresses God here. Oh, may your glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessing and praise. And then he begins now. They begin a confession of God. Go to verse, uh, chapter 9. Go to verse 6. Do you alone 
are God. You alone are God. You made the heavens. You made the heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is in on it, or that is is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You gave life to all of them. The heavenly host bows down before you. Right away, you're God alone. There is no other God. Secondly, you created all things: earth, heaven, everything, heavenly host, everything. You are God. You created all, and you created us. And notice how that, in the confession of God here, it sets us, it sets them in context with what's going on. I'm not my own God. There's only one God. Yahweh is the God. He alone, and He created me. And they continue. Continue this aspect of God. Seven, you are the Lord God. Notice there in the Lord um, that it's, the word Yah is the personal name given to to the, the people of Israel of God. This is one who chose Abram and brought him out of the Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. It's interesting. This is the only other place in Scripture besides Genesis that gives us this understanding. The Abram, the name, the, the name separation into Abraham the, and the fullness of, of this. <clears throat> you brought him from the Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. You found in his heart that his heart was faithful before you. Remember Genesis Abram's faith was counted him for righteousness. We have that in the New Testament. You gave him the land of the Canaanites, of the Hittites, and the Amorites, of the Perizzites, and Jebusites, and the Girgashites, uh, to give to his descendants. And you have fulfilled your promise, for you are righteous. Thirdly, the God is a promise maker, and he's a promise keeper. This one God made a covenant with Abraham, and he fulfilled his covenant. And even now, as they are, have experienced captivity, God is keeping his covenant because he said, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will curse you. But the covenant is always there. And I'll continue to work to bring you back to me. And he is doing so in this time. He is a covenant-keeping God. Alone, God alone, God the creator, God the promise-keeper, He continues, verse 9, You saw the afflictions of your father in Egypt. You heard their cry by the Red Sea. Then you performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants and all the peoples of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly toward them and made a name for yourself as it is today. You divided the sea before him. He, He goes through the whole understanding of what happened in Egypt. They passed through the midst of the sea on dry ground. And their pursuers you hurled into the depths like a stone to raging waters. With a pillar of cloud, you led them by day, a pillar of fire by night, to light for them the way in which they were to go. God, the deliverer. Remember, they went down because of the famine to Egypt. They went there. And after 400 years, the Pharaoh rose that did not know Joseph. Joseph once high up, and, the, and basically God used him to save the country of Egypt from famine. And after he passed off the scene, the people multiplied and Kept on growing, the Pharaoh was a little afraid. Great harshness, enslavement, God delivered them. With the promise keeping comes the, the promise deliverer. The one who delivers on his promises, God the deliverer. Next is God the lawgiver, verse 13. You came down on Sinai. You spoke with them from heaven. You gave them just ordinances, true laws, good statutes and commandments. 
You made to them known your holy Sabbath, laid down for them commandments, statutes, and laws through your servant Moses. Notice, good, just, true. It wasn't just a law of capriciousness. I want you to do this because I just like you doing this. This is a law that was good and just because God is just. He is righteous. All the things that he does is right. This is the God who is the law giver. This is God. One more thing, verse 15. The provider. You provided bread from heaven for them. This is the time of them wandering the desert, the wilderness. You brought forth water from from a rock for them, for their thirst. You told them to enter in order to possess the land which you swore to give them. So you have it here that God is a provider God. He takes them into the land, a land that was possessed by evil people, a land that did not know God, a land that rebelled, that was evil, harsh, bloodthirsty, and said, I'm going to give you this land. Along the way, I'm going to provide for you. God the provider. What a great God. What a wonderful God to be our God. And so, in, those, in, in that case, why would we ever do anything that would be against what he would say? Because we know our own hearts and because we know the history. As we see the confession of God in this instance, they also see how they should confess that sin. So here, a listing of who God is and was, and it will continue in a moment, but the listing, the confession of God results in the confession of their sin because in verse 16, but they, our fathers, acted arrogantly. They became stubborn. Uh, the idea is to stiffen their neck. And would not listen to your commandments. Verse 17, that begins with, they refused to listen. Here in the first confession of sin, you know, those who are arrogant with their pride, they're stubborn, and they would not listen to God. How is it that a people who have been delivered, have been rescued, and so many occasions have been been God's favored, favored people become arrogant and say, I know more than you, God. I don't have to follow you. How would it that a people will be stubborn and refuse to listen to God? How is it that we, as a people, often become just like they? Arrogant. It's sad when we come to the point where we will not listen. We'll refuse to listen to what people are saying to us. We're so arrogant and stubborn that we say, nobody can tell me what to do. No, no, uh uh-uh. Not God, not you, not anybody. We struggle with that. Many of the struggles that we have is rooted here in pride. It's the struggle in pride that we say, we know more than God. Don't tell me what to do. This is it. Um, Skip down to verse 18. Even when they made for themselves a calf of molten metal and said, This is your God who brought you up from Egypt and committed great blasphemies. See, arrogance, stubbornness, refusing to listen, leads to idols. They could be idols of, uh, of our own making. That's the kind of the absurd thing. I build something, and then I sit it there, and I bow down to it that I made. Or we make idols of ourselves, and that's, that's real easy to do. I'm my own God. I mean, I don't have the, the magical powers, but I'm my own God. I live that way because I'm the only one I consult. I'm the only one that has a say in the matter. I'm my own God. 
Even believers sometimes do this. And we see the children of Israel, even those who follow God, live practically as atheists. They say, hey, <laughs> no, God, I'm not going to pretend you're not there because I want to be God. Now, what would you do if you were God? <clears throat> he has to uphold his covenant. But he does so with great tenderness. And even when he judges, he does so out of compassion to bring them back. Verse 17, but, I love this. And, and if, you have a, if you're in your digital copy, you can highlight, or if you're in a paper copy, you can, you can mark if you do those kind of things. <clears throat> there are several times you see but... God or but, those kind of things. Would you bracket those? Verse, seven, uh, verse 16. <clears throat> uh, sorry, yes, yeah, 17, middle of 17. But you are a God of forgiveness, a gracious and compassionate, a gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love and kindness, and you did not forsake them. A forgiving God, a compassionate God. You or I would have written them off and say, you know what, my, I, I had this covenant and I know, but you rejected it first, you broke it, <clears throat> so you're done. I'm done with you. It's not our God. That is not our God. Still calling, still forgiving, still compassionate. Yes, in judgment. The judgment is particularly situated to bring us back to realization of who God is so that we confess God again and be in right relation with Him. A forgiving God, a compassionate God. We continue in verse 19. You and your great compassion did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud did not leave them by day to guide them on their way, nor the pillar of fire by night to light them for the way in which they were to go. This is a God who is a guiding God. They, he guided them. Um, I forgot to put one on there. Ah. Verse 20. You gave in your good spirit to instruct them. Your manna you did not withhold from their mouth. And you gave them water for their thirst. Sorry, I didn't make the slide. But he's a teaching God, a, a God who teaches us, who instructs us. How appropriate for today. As school starts back, we have educators, a God who is compassionate, be compassionate, educators, who is forgiving, who is tender and kind, who desires to instruct and to lead, not to push away, has come near this one, this God. Providing God, verse 22, uh, things didn't wear out, they're closed, in 21, their clothes did not wear out, feed did not swell, you gave them kingdom provisions, you made their sons numerous in 23, stars of the heaven, you brought them into the land which your fathers uh, possessed. All of this as he's giving, <clears throat> they captured and fortified cities in a fertile land, they took possession, 25, of houses full of every good thing, whom cisterns, uh, they walked into a ready-made land. <clears throat> and so here God provides an abundance. And so they, this is the time, they're, they're entering into the land, the promised land, they're taking over a land of bloodthirsty people, and God says, this is your land. However, <clears throat> verse 26, but they came disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back. They killed you and killed your prophets who had admonished them so that they might return to you, and they committed great 
blasphemies. God sent prophets. Hey, he returned unto me, he says, through the prophet, and they killed him. It's pretty harsh, huh? We have a saying now, don't shoot the messenger. It's interesting, when we rebel and when we sin, we shoot the messenger that God sends to us to say, hey, hey, Stacy, um, seems like there's an area not right. Not physically, of course. Not literally, but we, we tear them down. Well, how, how dare you tell me that? That's wrong. I know my soul, I'm right. Confession of sin, disobedience, rebellion. <clears throat> 27, therefore you delivered them into the hands of the oppressors who oppressed them. But when they cried to you in the time of their distress, you heard from heaven according to your great compassion. But when they cried, you heard compassionate God once again. You gave them deliverers into verse 27, who delivered them from the hand of their oppressors. But as soon as they had rest, they did evil again before you. Therefore you abandoned uh, them to the hand of their enemies that they ruled over them. When they cried again to you, you heard from heaven. Many times you rescued them according to your compassion and admonished them. You see the cycle. 29, middle of the way through, they acted arrogantly you did not, and did not listen to your commandments, but sinned against your ordinances, <clears throat> turned a stubborn shoulder. However, you bore with them for many years and admonished them by your spirit through the prophets. Yet they would not give ear Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the land. Nevertheless, in your great compassion, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. You didn't completely end them. For you are a gracious God. Actions of the people. They did evil. God responds, compassion. They are arrogant. Go here. And you see the patience of God. You see they wouldn't listen. They have compassion. God has compassion. In every instance, when the people rebelled, God answered often in judgment, but always in compassion with an open door for forgiveness. Patience. A biblical word, long-suffering. And if it were for us, we would feel the suffering. If we had to tolerate someone like God tolerates us and tolerated them. This is our God. This is our God. Verse 32, never, uh, Now therefore our God, the great and mighty, the awesome God, again a confession of who God is, who keeps covenants and loving kindness, do not, let, do not let all the hardship seem insignificant before you, which has come upon us, our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, on all your people, from the days of the kings of Assyria to even to this day. However, you are just in all that has come upon us. And this is an incredible recognition that we all must come to the point of when we sin, God is just in judgment. God, why are you doing this to me? And we want to do a collective, duh, until it's us. Obviously, not every hardship in fact, many hardships are not in response to sin. But the way of the transgressor is hard. God, you're just. You are just in what you do in answering my sin. 
which you've dealt faithfully. But we have acted wickedly. And here you see this God in Nehemiah with the people of Israel acting faithfully every time they act wickedly. He is faithful, number one, to himself, to his attributes, and he is faithful to the people. He honors his covenant with them. And behold, verse 36, we are slaves today as to the land which you have gave to our fathers to eat of its fruit and its bounty. Behold, we are slaves in it. Verse 37, its abundant produce is for the kings, for whom you have set over us because of our sin. Everything that we get, we have to give away to the king. They rule over our bodies, over our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. Now we are making an agreement in writing. On the sealed documents are the names of our leaders, our Levites, and our priests. And so there, and we'll look at it tonight, they signed a document, the leaders signed for them, a document committing themselves to God in certain areas that we'll look at tonight. And they signed on the line. They confessed to God... They confessed their sin. What led to that first? What led to those two things was worship. They worshiped God. They saw who He is. And really, true worship is both transcendent and is transformational. You see, when you confess God, there is no other recourse to confess God and His greatness and His power than to look at myself and I must say, I am not so great, I am not so powerful. In fact, there's a lot of sin, and I must confess my sin before God. And if your worship does anything besides this, if it doesn't transform you, then it's not true worship. So the people said, we will, because of who God is and our worship of Him, we will confess our sins and we will commit to following Following God. Now you say, thank you, Stacy, for the lesson history. <clears throat> what does that have to do with me today? You were given a piece of paper. You pull that out. This is not to be turned in. In fact, maybe this is homework. Carry our theme. <clears throat> You know, as on this side of the cross, we don't have leaders to sign for us. God has made us, one passage, kings and priests. We're his children, we're in his family. But I wonder if we understand the full ramification of that. Do we understand the ramification of who God is? And if we say, if we claim that we are a follower of Christ, what that entails. This morning, the piece of paper is your agreement. Your signed agreement. And maybe it is that there are things at the top of the page about God that you have forgotten or neglected. It may be different from all of us. We may just want to say, yes, God, you are a just God. You are a righteous God. 
It could be that, you know, God, I've forgotten your mercy and your grace, your compassion, and I need to, I need to dwell upon that. As I confess on the bottom side, my sins, I need to dwell upon your compassion and understand that you do forgive and that you do forgive completely. Consequences, I understand. I have to deal with those, but you forgive completely. But in the second half, maybe you want to write in disappearing ink, the sins. Maybe it is. Could it be that we in our day act stubbornly, arrogantly, pridefully? Could it be that we refuse to listen to the word of God, to those that God sends in our lives? To warn us? Could it be that we want to go our own way? We want to make our own gods? And I'm primarily speaking to those who follow Christ, who name the name of Christ. See, we must be transformed to the image of Christ day by day, slowly by slowly. God is working in our hearts to bring us into the image of Christ so that we look like him, that we act like him. How? So that he can use us to advance the glory of God, advance the kingdom of God. If you're a guest here, we speak at GBF that our mission is to reach souls and build lives in love. The reaching souls, the the dual track of the Great Commission. The reaching souls is telling them of Jesus Christ. The building lives is, is discipling. We all need that. But we must do so in love. It's the love of God that compels us to go, to love, to care, to be compassionate, that says we're not here for us. And maybe that's the sin that we need to write down. I'm not here for me, God. I'm here for you. I'm here for those around me. And so there's, a, there's an X, a dotted line on your paper. And I wonder, in the quiet of your, of your living space, whatever that is, you might sign your name and date it as an agreement. See, the, the fundamental thing here in chapter 9 to 10 is that God is a great God. And because He is God, we must confess Him as God. And I must, and you must confess your sin. Will we be changed by seeing God? You notice I didn't say today, here's the five things I want you to do to make you look like a Christian. Because here's a hint. It's much more radical than that. There's not a checkbox. It's a radical changing of a heart and a life that begins to beat as Christ's beat. To love others as Christ loves sacrificially to your own detriment. To give and give and give for the glory of God. That's truly transformational. Truly transformational. We confess God. He is great. We confess our sin. And then we rest and worship a God who is all compassionate. Let's bow for prayer. Before we pray, Just a a thought or two. 
This time in our service, if you've not been here before, it's a time to reflect on what um, God's Word has said. What God's Word is teaching us here. And so what about you? What about us? Have you been transformed? If you're here today, you don't know God, you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I want to give you hope. Sometimes those who do not know Jesus hear this and think that there's no hope to be his child because of the magnitude of your sin. I think the record of this passage tells us otherwise. That God is a gracious God and receives the heart that comes to him in faith. God is a God of compassion. And Jesus stands willing to forgive you of your sin and to receive you into his family. If you but confess your sin and yield your heart to him. Romans 10.8, I referenced earlier. What, but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth, in your heart. That is the word of faith which we, have, we are preaching. Paul is writing If you confess or profess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with a heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness, but with a mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. The scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. If you're here today without relation with Christ, relationship with Christ, I urge you today, I urge you, to continue to follow and to find out more about him. And believer, the lie of the adversary says that we can blow it so much that we will never be profitable to God. That's what he hopes us to think, because many of us here, myself included, great sin, it would be easy to say God cannot use us now. And obviously there are consequences to our sin, and sometimes it does taint some areas. You know what? The grace of God is so great that you can. You can live for him, the believer. And I think this passage illustrates the patience of God, the compassion of God. Bring all to him, and he will, in his compassion, forgive. And so for the believer who is struggling with sin and who, who thinks God cannot forgive, I, I urge you in the strongest terms I can, I can to, to just run back to him. Throw yourself upon him. Don't turn your back. Receive the forgiveness of him. Deal with your sin. Sign on that dotted line. Give it all to him. This morning I'd love to, to pray with you. I, I don't know what I don't need to know. You want to talk about that's fine. I don't need to know what's going on in your heart. But if you'd say, Stacey, please pray for me. I'm struggling in some area, or I need to get an area right. And you want me to just lift up your hand quietly, and I'll be happy to pray for you. Thank 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 you. I'll pray for you this week. God would just lead, show himself real to you, as you, as you dwell with him. Our invitation goes this way. You can come to the front and pray, but if you want to go to the back, Pastor Mark will be back and others will be there. 
If you want to talk to someone, maybe you hear you don't know Christ and you would say, I need to know more. I'm curious. Um, step to the back. Signify, you just kind of make connection and um, the places we can go and pray out of the way. Um, if you want to stay in your chair and pray, that's fine too. Um, but if God has touched, touched your heart in some way, would you respond to him? Gracious God, thank you for your word. May it do a great work in our hearts and lives. Lord, may, Lord, may we confess when we pray, may we act, may we do your will. Thank you for who you are. Transform us. Continue to transform us by your grace. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Number 13.